Welcome to Activist NYC, the podcast, presented by Listening Party and recording inside Canal Street Market. I'm your host, Cindy Trin. Each episode features a different guest working in activism and social justice in New York City. My goal is to learn about what motivates activists to do the hard work they dedicate their lives to and discuss the important issues surrounding the people of New York. Stay with us. My guest today is Annie Tan, a special education teacher, writer, activist, and storyteller. She has fought for public education, teachers' unions, Chinatown tenants, and Asian American rights. Annie has been featured in the Huffington Post, Edotopia, and the New York Times. She is currently working on a book about her family on an Asian American history. Thanks for being here, Annie. Welcome. Hi. I'm so glad to have you. Mm -hmm. um, you were a guest of mine for my exhibition recently. Yes. I, I had you present um, some of your storytelling at the closing reception of uh, my latest solo gallery show, uh, which was really, w w what a wonderful event. Uh, it, was, it was exactly what we needed, just having a lot of Asian American artists together, um, just sharing like, you know, what they think about the world and how, you know, we just need our voices out there as Asian Americans, really. Yeah, I mean, we just need a platform to tell our voices and or to speak, you know, and to and to share our stories and to share our voices. And so, I really appreciate what you do because uh, you're a storyteller and you love like the way that you tell stories uh, is so fun and like really moving. And um, you know, you're you, you've uh, performed your story about Chinatown at The Moth, correct? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the Moth, If for listeners who don't know, um, is a very popular uh, series where people, storytellers, a lot of writers and um, different storytellers go up on stage and they tell stories. Um, and it's a really great series. If you haven't heard about it, you should check it out. Um, you can just look up The Moth. Yeah, uh, if you look up my name, Annie Tan, in The Moth, you can find my story. You can find it, about, cool. Um, so I told a story at The Moth um, about being related to Vincent Chin. Um, he was a man who was beaten to death in 1982, Detroit, um, when there was a Japanese auto workers, crisis, auto workers crisis in Detroit where Detroit auto workers were blaming the Japanese for the loss of their jobs. And these two men uh, who were auto workers thought uh, my cousin Vincent Chin was Japanese and proceeded to beat him to death with a baseball bat. And his death led to no uh, jail time uh, for the two assailants. And that led to a pan-Asian American movement in America that really hasn't been matched since. Uh, all these groups came together uh, you know, they were previously based in ethnicity, you know, saying they were Chinese or Japanese or Korean. Um, and they came together under the banner for the first time Asian American. And so I found out about him being related to me. And um, I tell the story of just how I found him um, in my family and what he means to me. How, how did you find out that he was related to you? So I found out actually through the PBS documentary, um, Becoming American, The Chinese Experience. 
uh, at 13 years old. Uh, it was kind of perfect for me growing up here in Chinatown and feeling like as a kid of immigrants, like I didn't really have a history here. I didn't have an identity here. It just felt like I was straddling all the time between being Chinese and then being American in school. And then, so I'm watching this documentary and Vincent Chin shows up for the last 20 minutes of it because he is that important to Asian American history. And my mom just comes into the room and she says, that is your older male cousin. Which in Chinese culture could mean anything. Like it could be like a cousin <laughs> yeah. of a cousin of a cousin <laughs> yeah. or anything. So, you know, I spend the next 10 years trying to figure out who he is and whether I get to claim him as family and um, why he's so important to me. So you can listen to that um, if you look up the moth radio hour and my name, Annie Tan. Yeah, that's really that. I mean, ima I can't imagine um, finding out that such a story right has such a personal connection to you and the story is is gruesome and it reminds us right that the whole model minority stereotype is very 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 like wrong for so many reasons Absolutely. but it especially like we what what the what model minority stereotype has done to us is that it's created you know a pers us as a persona that we are uh, well-behaved and wealthy, um, successful. We put our heads down and we study hard and we raise good kids. Um, but then we are then confronted, right, with the story of Vincent Chin and we're reminded that we are easily disposable by white supremacy. Right. And we can be killed off any anytime, really. It's what academics call like a conditional citizenship that we get all the rights of uh, and privileges of certain people in this country. But as soon as someone who looks like us does something wrong, then that citizenship is thrown away. Right. I, it, it reminds me also a lot of um, the story that I followed uh, deeply out of Texas. And it was in this tiny little town out of like uh, outside of Houston. It's called Sea Drift. There's actually a documentary that just came out about it. And it was about like the tension between the fishermen, the Vietnamese fishermen who you know came to this country after the war and they started trying to build a new life for themselves. So they a lot of uh, Vietnamese men are fishermen and they started fishing the waters of this tiny town in Texas. And the white locals, you know, started like a sort of war between the white fishermen and the Vietnamese fishermen trying to drive them out. Eventually, long story short, you know, the KKK came into wow. the, Yeah, the KKK came to the to the town and and was inciting violence against the Vietnamese fishermen and driving them out and it 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 feels vaguely familiar in that you know, we have this history. We have this history of white supremacy, you know, white supremacy, trying to drive us out, oppressing us, inciting violence against us. And as much as Asian Americans have succeeded now in this country, we have to constantly remember that history because it's so important for us to think about that history and then use that to stand in solidarity with black and brown communities right now, right? Absolutely. Who are constantly and you know, for centuries really um, have been oppressed and have been 
shot kill and killed by uh you know by police officers by our government by mm -hmm. and and so i think you know that's what fuels me to stand up for black and brown people because w we have to think about our own history and how it much how pretty much it relates very closely to to those other communities and i think we're stronger together right absolutely with and those other communities and a lot of it you know we like the model minority myth puts Asian Americans as a wedge like between other minority groups yeah. and then pits us against each other whereas you know during the Vincent Chin case you see Jesse Jackson and many many black organizations supporting Vincent Chin and you know in New York when Akai Gurley was killed by Peter Liang you see Cav um, coming in to help but then there's other Asian American organizations divided about whether or not uh, they should be supporting Peter Liang because he is a Chinese American cop in New York City in 2014 when uh, he did accidentally kill Kai Gurley. But also, you know, there there are intricacies of that police shooting um, that are different from, you know, many other uh, police shootings and ba Black Lives Matter. But fact is, he probably shouldn't have been in that staircase in the first place, um, um, and having shot a Kai Gurley, right? Um, and what does that mean for the Asian American community? Where do we stand on Black Lives Matter? And that is a complicated uh, discussion that we have to have with our families um, and with our communities about just the system that has, you know, the police institution and system that creates situations like the Peter Lian case. Yeah, definitely. For me, so during my, during my time with Occupy Wall Street, I noticed something about cops because I observed them, I was around them a lot during that time. And the thing about- Are you are you saying they were around you? Like they were kind of watching what- Oh yeah. All the Occupy oh, all Wall the Street people. Yep. All the okay. time. Well, I was a legal observer and they still watch me because right. they, they, you know, they see us as part of the Occupy mm -hmm. group. But what I noticed about police officers, um, at least here in New York, is that once you become a police officer, your race actually doesn't quite matter anymore. You just become blue. You are now a blue race. You are the, the NYPD, you are police. So it's almost like as if race in within the NYPD doesn't quite matter anymore mm -hmm. because once you become a police officer, they only see you as one of their own. It's like a little cult, right? I will, I will also say I, I listened to a, a podcast on, I believe it was Reveal or Code Switch, where there was a, a number of black and Latinx um, police officers suing their local precinct because yeah. they were treating... Uh, be being treated badly by their district right? and dis oh yeah there's definitely going to be certain exceptions of those officers who are you know who want to stand up to the system but i think from what i observe for the most part when you become part of um the cult that is the nypd uh you are no longer you are just seen as blue. You are just seen as a police officer. So no matter what your race, even if you're black or Latino or Asian and you're in the and you're a police officer, they don't see that it, it's it's hard to explain. It's like it's like once you become their own, that's all they care about. They care about protecting their own only. So even if 
you know, Peter Liang, um, good example. He's an Asian American police officer. And the first to be indicted and in a decade. And the first to be indicted, right? For um, a uh, shooting on the on duty. Yeah. I mean, they they all just see, like, like the police, they all see Peter Liang as just part of the NYPD. So that's, so the, the problem with what happened with Akai Gurley's case was that the, the way that it unfolded after the initial shooting. Like, he, Peter Liang didn't do anything to try to save Akai Gurley's life, right? Yeah. So that's, that's, gonna, that's like the key, um, uh, you know, key fact for me that made me wonder why didn't he care to save this man's life? He only cared first about his job. And, and that's, that's the cult mentality of mm. the NYPD, right? Um, so I, I definitely agree that there's a lot of nuances within that case. And I don't think, I don't think Peter Liang had any intention of shooting a guy. Absolutely not. No, I don't think there was that intention. I think, I think what happened was, was a mistake was made. And instead of, of, of accountability for that, it was just tried, they just tried to cover it up. And that's like that cult mentality of the NYPD of covering up their mistakes. And what I think what Black Lives Matter, what they really want is accountability. They just want accountability. Right. And, right? I, and that Huffington Post article, like, you know, you said, I wrote in the Huffington Post, it was around the Peter Leanne case and yeah. saying that what we should be striving for is accountability for all cops who do end up shooting people, whether they were justified or not in shooting them, right? right? And, you know, they were trying to compare Vincent Chin to Peter Liang and saying that my cousin, like, his injustice is similar to that of Peter Liang's injustice, but my cousin never killed anyone. Yeah. And so, like, I was like, where did that comparison come from? That was being made by a lot of people because just in general, like, Chinese-American history is not, like, wide and far like in terms of what immigrants know right so that's how you can get 10,000 people at Prospect Park uh, protesting for Peter Liang and not for Kai Gurley and so the reason I just brought that up in the first place was not to bring up controversy I got enough of it when I posted my article um, online but um, just to say that there's a lot of nuances that we really have to work on within our own community about how we want to be perceived, how we want to be in this society and community, and how we work with black and brown uh, people who are in our communities and with white people in America. Right, right? I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think it starts with dialogue. It starts with um, you know talking about these issues. Obviously, educating the community about um, what's happening and, and the movement and and what you know, Black Lives Matter is really trying to uh, convey it, right? Right. And I think, too, that it was so New York-centric. Like, Peter Liang, he went to both my elementary and middle schools. You know, my, like, friends, like, were in classes with him, right? And Chinatown is very small, Yeah. like, at the end of the day. Like, if you grew up in Chinatown, you probably know, like, if you're within, like, three years of someone, you know them, you know? So, like... It, my elementary school was raising money for Peter Liang's family, right? For his, uh, you know, his lawyers and all of that. So 
it's it's different when you you know you see Black Lives Matter as a larger political statement, mm-hmm. and you see someone in your community suffering. Yeah. And so there there's all these like local and then national political conversations. And I think in Chinatown, oftentimes because we want to protect ourselves and we want to protect our family, that um, we often see it that way. And that's not the worst thing in the world, but it can blind us to what's happening in communities that are right across from us and, um, you know, alienate us. And so that's an issue that we, we do have to really talk about. Right, because, you know, I I know for, for a fact that a lot of the black community, how hurt they were that all these people were coming out for Peter Liang. They felt, you know, they felt so hurt by that. And... And that's how, you know, this isn't the first time there's been racial tensions between Asians and blacks in this country, right? And, um, you know, we, I remember, I grew up in California, so I remember a lot of the tensions happening in, in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. right, when uh, Rodney King, when, the, yeah. when, that, when that video surfaced and there were riots in, in L.A., um, and a lot of the rioters uh, were looting K-Town businesses, um, and Korean business owners took out guns and they they started like shooting up, you know, <laughs> they right. started shooting up to protect their business. Right. Right. So there's like there's there's all these nuanced stories on both sides. It's like here these Korean businesses are just trying to protect their livelihood. But then on the other side, it's like there's this horrible thing that happened for the black community. And there's so much hurt and anger Right and right. And, it, and it just sort of all collides sometimes and I think um, with the model minority m- stereotype and how a lot of Asian and Black communities have been pitted against each other, it's it just creates this environment where it's easy for Asians and Blacks to start having those racial tensions. Right, and, and it's, so and it's yeah. so important to tell stories. And that's why you know right. it was only like three years ago that I started telling stories on stage and I just felt like, you know, it was a month after Trump got elected and I just felt like there are so many things that people don't know about my community and um, just the ways that, you know, we are like, and my specific story that I felt like things just needed to be shared um, because people weren't listening during the whole election process in 2016 and it was just hard to feel like, oh, like, we can just be solely political because politicizing anyone requires a story behind it and understanding what this means for them, you know? So I want to, like, get into now, you mentioned that you grew up in Chinatown, um, and, you know, this community has seen a lot of changes. Oh, yes. Uh, And and right now, um, for listeners that don't know, uh, the community here has been really rallying um, against the, the no new jails, right? So there's mm-hmm. all these, there's um, right now New York City uh, just passed legislation um, basically greenlighting uh, the construction of four new jails in New York City and thereby closing Rikers Island, but they're opening up four new jails. Um, and one of those jails will be in Chinatown. Yeah. And um, a lot of residents here feel like these jails are going to displace them. It's going to, the construction is going to hurt the elderly population here. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, your feelings on this legislation, how it's going to impact your neighborhood? Mm-hmm. So 
when Chinatown heard about it, they came to the meeting. People were driven away from the meeting because the room was too packed. Um, I haven't personally been uh, super into the no new jails, um, you know, the protests and the hearings. Um, but from my understanding from my friends, you know, who are very, very active in it, they are very disappointed in the councilwoman, Margaret Chin, mm -hmm. in her role in, um, you know, approving this jail, that there are probably concessions, um, you know, around like the new theater that the Museum of Chinese in America might have and their relationship to the jail situation. Um, and so it, it feels like it's yet another example of Chinatown people not uh, having a say in what their community looks like. Another example would be the towers uh, by Two Bridges. So oh, there's yeah. one mega tower that's like 80 stories oh, tall. Those towers are gigantic. And disgusting and looking. And disgusting looking. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> they, like, for a while, I think they had, like, a, a private entrance, right, and for non, like, pe people who lived around there. And then they have, like, a bowling alley. or And their condos are, like, $1 million homes or something like that in an area where almost all those homes are below the poverty line. Um, and it's, you know people are very afraid that um, their neighborhood is going to get even more displaced as more mega rich people take up these homes, change the neighborhood around it. And uh, they also want to build three new towers that look exactly the same. Uh, there have been multiple processes, uh, the ULERP process uh, through the city council. The community board um, has been in favor of you know, trying to find a process to not have these towers in place. Um, but ultimately, it's up to city council. So um, it's yet another example of Chinatown feeling like, well, we need a path mark, but that path mark was torn away to create these new towers. Um, and, you know, just because we have uh, some of the most low-income residents uh, in Manhattan doesn't mean we don't get a say or a voice um, in what happens to us, right? And I grew up, you know, also being below the poverty line, um, helping my parents through Medicaid and figuring out social security documents um, and translating for them because they didn't know English. Uh, luckily, we have a number of organizations in Chinatown that help out with that, but uh, because of the lack of information, the lack of access to the English language, um, it's always felt like um, people can just take advantage of Chinatown residents. Um, and especially after 9-11 when, you know, uh, Chinatown basically closed down for a long while, uh, and uh, Mayor Bloomberg's uh, pushes to change real estate uh, here in the city and especially in Chinatown pushed out a lot of people, and Chinatown is the number one most gentrifying neighborhood in New York City right now. Um, and so a lot of groups are fighting back against you know, these towers being built, these new jails being built, um, and protecting housing for seniors um, and creating affordable housing for the residents who are here. 10% of residents in Chinatown left um, in 2010, like, you know, the decade, within the decade of 9-11. Um, so I'm very worried about, you know, having the many senior tenants I've worked with and known uh, not feel like they can live here anymore. Honestly, I don't know where these residents would go because if they left a Chinatown, they wouldn't have language access like they do here. My parents never learned English because 
they had access to jobs and to communities that spoke their language. Um, so for me, like as a teacher now, you know, I'm thinking about how do I get language justice into the schools, help, uh, you know, and uh, my Latinx students, like, you know, treasure and honor their Spanish in Sunset Park where I teach and have my Chinese students also treasure their Mandarin and Cantonese and Fujianese languages. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a balance of like, I have to defend Chinatown and like we have to defend Chinatown. It's not just a me thing. Um, it's an us, you know, and we can also, we can't also be about just us either. We have to be thinking about the communities that are around us. Yeah. This is, see, this is another reason why the model minority myth is so dangerous and so wrong because, um, I remember reading an article, uh, I think on Huffington Post about how n in New York, the, Asian American population is actually the poorest in the city. Um, and we don't think about them because of the myth, right? We don't think about the communities and we're neglected and we're ignored. And, um, you know, the, these issues that are being raised now, they're being just brushed aside almost because. Right the this the, they're silent like it's it's like we're like this silent um group in this country and yes there's definitely success stories i'm, I'm yeah. not denying that there are a lot of people asian americans in this country enjoying success and enjoying um you know what they worked hard for but there's so many others that don't fit the myth they don't fit the stereotype and because they don't fit that myth, they are lacking resources. They're lacking mm -hmm. anyone advocating for them because no one's paying attention to them. Right. Uh, they're and being ignored, right? And like Asian Americans will will say in New York, you know, we are the poorest like group of people in New York City. Um, and it's really important then for us to disaggregate uh, Asian American yes. data. Yes. Right. So there's a big push right now to make sure um, there is adequate representation of all ethnicities because um, I think just among Asian Americans, right? Like I used to do polling, poll watching for all deaf here. And like you'd have, like I would like volunteer in Cantonese, even though my Cantonese is meh, you know, <laughs> but like it's still better than like a random person, like, you know, or Toysan because a lot of uh, Chinese speakers here uh, only speak Toysan, which is, a dialect uh, that's spoken in the Guangdong province. Um, but I think there were like 50 to 100 different languages that all deaf needed in order to be able to do poll watching for all the different languages that exist in New York City that are just in the Asian American community. And so just to get disaggregated data of what every ethnicity is going through, um, you know, like Hmong people and Cambodian people and Laotian people there, they're doing worse than a lot of people who are Chinese and yes. Indian if you actually mm -hmm. disaggregate the data. And AAPI data has done a really good job of showing that and showing just even opinions about things like affirmative action. Um, again, we are a very diverse community. Um, and again, the model minority myth is making us seem like a monolith that all believe the same things about success. And when in reality, we just all aren't achieving it at the same rates. And it's been East Asians predominantly yes. that do get yeah. those success rates. And I 
I am one of those successes. Like, you know, I, I went to a really good college and I'm a, and solidly in the middle class right now as a New York City teacher. Yeah. I, and I think uh, I'm from, you know, I'm from a Vietnamese family. So my background is Southeast Asian and a lot of Southeast Asian communities, like you mentioned, the Laotian community, the Hmong community, um, they're the ones that are suffering a lot from poverty. And we don't think about them because they are a tiny portion of our inst uh, country's population. But I mean, does that mean that we should ignore them? No, of course not. They're still, they're still a part of this country, right? Um, and when I think about like what Donald Trump is doing to a lot of my people there he's deporting Vietnamese mm -hmm. he's deporting Cambodian refugees right now um you know wh why aren't we talking about that more like why can't we wh why aren't we talking about um you know the deportation of these Asians that belong in this country right we we came to this country and we made a life here um and all of a sudden years later Trump is trying to deport us and I think about how that could be my mom because she's a refugee, and I mean, I I I just get so angry at that. And and you know, just because a lot of the East Asian population, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, they're seen as wealthy, especially Chinese now, because right. um, China itself has grown economically so much and now we're you know Trump is trying to get into this whole like trade war with China and it's creating a lot of kind of inner animosity I think towards like Chinese people and, and Asians it, in general it goes back to this idea like you know some some people will not claim Asians as people of color and when you know I'm asked I'm asked by white people and black people and Latinx people like why do you count like, I've, I've been asked, right? And I'm like, because as soon as we get into, w the U.S. gets into a war with China or Korea or whatever country they want to get into a war next, we will be, we will no longer be those citizens. That's the reality of conditional citizenship that I said earlier. It's like what happened with Japanese Americans during the Japanese internment in World War II, right? Exactly. They were immediately treated like scum. Right. Essentially, they were no longer human beings in the eyes of the American government and the American people. So that could easily happen to us today, right? right. And I mean, during the Vietnam War, it was the same, the same mentality against Vietnamese people that Vietnamese people were dirty, we were scoundrels, we right. were, you know, we're all commies, uh, even though the refugees were fleeing from the communists. Um, it, it was the same rhetoric that. Um, you know, a lot of the powers that be, white supremacy and American and this racist American government that has been oppressing people of color in this country for, since its inception, right? Right. Um, and it's the same rhetoric of, you know, they're dirty. They're 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 not they're they're not to be trusted. Um, and we're all criminals, or you know, we're we're just we're just bad we're just bad people and. Uh, we should, we don't belong here. That's happening to our Latinx and black yeah. brothers and sisters and comrades, right? Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's happening to refugees all over the world right now, um, especially the, the Muslim community and the Syrian refugee crisis. I, I saw a lot of videos um, 
that compared the Syrian refugee crisis with the Vietnamese refugee crisis mm -hmm. back during the war. And there was so much overlap, so many stories that felt very, very similar and overlapped. And they had interviewed a lot of Vietnamese refugees and they t those refugees talked about like their experiences, right? Like fleeing on a boat and coming to this country and feeling that fear, all that's like feeling so scared and obviously not being welcome when they came here and all the xenophobia that was happening during that time. It, it's very much what's going, ha what's happening with the Muslim community here now the uyghurs yeah. in china as well with with a little bit obviously of their own nuances because the muslim community here is experiencing you know all the surveillance and you know and and being t like uh i had um an episode just a few weeks ago with abdullah um who is muslim and he talked about how at any moment someone could be swiped away from the community and they might not ever see that person again. Wow. And and that's that's like the thing that Muslims have to live with right now in this country. You know, they have to live with like the fear of their family could just be taken away at any moment and they might not ever see them again. Right. Um, so there there's a, there's all these that's why I talk a lot about having solidarity with our black and brown people because and communities because our our experiences are a lot more similar than we think right, right? which is why it's important for podcasts to exist <laughs> and like for yeah. these stories to be out there frankly yeah. like you know when when people look at me they're like oh no you're you're just another one of those like you know chinese american women who just like are going to do your own thing and like i'm it's not that I have to prove them wrong or anything. It's just that we don't have the connection yet. I've had people actually say to me that racism against Asian Americans doesn't exist. And I'm like, wait, what do you? Okay, let me let me well, like uh, let me yeah. <laughs> let me send you some links about right. the Chinese Exclusion Act. Let me send you some links about Japanese internment right. and like you know and like there's like there's a lot of history right. of and Vincent Chin right? right like bringing it all back to uh, what like, happened with Vincent it's, Chin. It's hard because like this American education system, as I am a teacher right now. Like they don't what? teach about it. We don't teach about it, right? Yeah. And like right now, like the past few years, I've been teaching about you know the beginnings of slavery and the diagrams of slave ships, and you know like that stuff. I didn't learn till college and after, right? Right. And I'm teaching it now in fifth grade. It's in the fifth grade curriculum. Oh wow. You know we're teaching about the genocide of indigenous peoples in the Americas, right? And that was also something that was not pushed. We we were pushed as kids, like you know, 20, 30 years ago when I was. A kid like, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the Nina, the Pintas, the Santa Maria. But like we never centered uh, indigenous peoples or black people's narratives. And now they're like, you know, we're reading. Um, yeah, just like a number of people who were and I shouldn't even slave slave narratives. These are people who were enslaved. Right. Mm -hmm. Because these people like did not choose to be enslaved. Right. And they had their own. um lives like Olauda Equiano writing his own uh, narrative about uh, you know what it was like to go, go through the middle passage and how he was able to write this narrative down and tell us you know what was happening back then um, but me and you Cindy we didn't get that we yeah. just didn't and I didn't so get like it I all. can't I can't blame 
anyone who doesn't know my history because I didn't know my history. I had like <laughs> yeah. three paragraphs of it, K through 12. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. and it was because I took AP U.S. history that they had a paragraph about the Vietnam War. Yeah. They had a paragraph about Japanese internment and they might have had a paragraph about the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that was it. And that was it. It's just it, it's not enough. Right. And, right. and that's where it really starts is with and education. How, and how can we politicize our Asian-American community if we don't even know our own stories? Like right. I found about Vincent Chin through a documentary and yeah actually it's funny because um, it's kind of like come full circle because um, in uh, next spring uh, is going to be another documentary from PBS called Asian Americans yeah um, and I'm going to be in it oh my god which is really exciting that's really exciting um, so like I spent uh, the day with Helen Zia who was one of the lead activists on the Vincent Chin case and she toured me around all day showing me like you know, just where Vincent, uh, you know, lived and died and where all these organizers, you know, organized in restaurants and in uh, Lily Chin's home and all these other places. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that, like, for me, it has come full circle in that way. Um, but hopefully for the next generation of Asian Americans and beyond, they'll watch this documentary and know, like, there is way more. It's a five-series uh, documentary, so it's, like, uh, from my understanding, five episodes right now. Wow. Um, and so it's going to go deep into um, Asian American history. This is what we need. We need right. more programming and more education. And, um, you know, speaking about of your job uh, teaching and being a teacher, I want to get into that. Like, how did you decide that you wanted to become a teacher? Because being a teacher is not easy. Nope. It is not easy. You were just telling me before we started this episode that you can't even take bathroom breaks. No. <laughs> no, I like, you know, if if I need to go to the bathroom, I need to find someone to watch my class I, I mean because I'm responsible for my students. I, don't, don't we have like a system in place so that teachers can at least use the bathroom? Right. Like teachers, nurses and truck drivers, man, we have the highest rates of UTIs. Because we have to hold our pee oh. all day long. Uh, I mean, on top of just dealing with kids, <laughs> a classroom of kids all day. And, yeah, you know, I mean, why did you decide to, that you wanted to teach? So, you know, when I was six, I decided to be a teacher. Um, you know, and as I said earlier, I was trying to figure out how I was going to navigate, like, being in Chinatown and speaking another language at home. This was before I had any conception of the word immigrant or the word Chinese or whatever it was I was, I just knew myself as a kid. But I cried every day till like about six years old. And it was with Miss Sheridan, my teacher, who made me feel like I could love learning and like we could have experiential learning. And she felt like I was smart. She made me feel like I was smart and um, that I would be okay in America with the support of teachers. And I wanted um, teachers like, you know, to support kids like me. And so I wanted to be a teacher too because I wanted like kids of immigrants like me kids who didn't feel like they belonged to feel like they belonged that's that's incredible I I, I really have a lot of respect for teachers um, because you are educating our, our future right mm -hmm. and and when I look at young kids right now they're so impressive oh yeah I mean young kids right now they are they're leading climate strikes they're leading you know marches they're leading global movements yep. i'm just like wow i'm amazed by young people and um well it's because you know we teachers like push onto our students that they have a voice and their yeah. voice matters you know and 
Like it's only been the past few years where I've been like, no, I need to step back and lose control of my classroom for a little bit and let my students talk. Yeah. And let my students speak. You know how how many teachers want to hold on to control of their classrooms and like, you know, be you know, the old model of teaching is like kind of this banking model. Uh, that Paulo Freire writes about in the Pedagogy of the Oppressed, where teachers deposit information into students' empty brains, and the students take that in. And that's not how kids learn. They learn from each other. They have ideas. Yes. Yeah. Their voices matter. Their experiences matter. Right. And it's up to us teachers to be culturally competent, speak their languages, mm-hmm. honor their heritages and cultures, no, understand that as much as possible, right? Um, and also share, like, you know, I, I'm teaching about, you know, indigenous peoples over the past few weeks talking about the Maya, Inca, and Aztec empires. And a lot of my students uh, are descendants from those peoples, right? Uh, one of my students' last name is Cortez, and we were talking about Hernan Cortez. Um, and he's like, oh, am I related to the guy who, like, conquered the Aztec peoples and, like, gave them all diseases and made them all sick? <laughs> you know, and it's just so funny. But, like, I was not at that level in fifth grade, but, like, it's because we're talking about it in class and I'm giving them time to discuss. Um, but it's also because as a teacher, you know, like you've seen like the wave of 2018 and 2019 teacher strikes all through the nation yeah. union or wildcat strikes for those uh, unions, uh, for those uh, teachers who don't have a union. And it's getting to the point um, where teachers are beginning to say, no, we get a say in educational policy. You education policy people like Betsy DeVos, who have no understanding Ugh. of education, cannot Literally be dictating. No oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And you cannot be dictating, you know, what uh, what education policy looks like. And, you know, my politicization as a teacher started in Chicago when, uh, you know, I saw the 2012 teacher strike and 10,000 teachers on the streets of uh, downtown Chicago, like wearing all red T-shirts. And that just changes you. You know, like, and I saw images from the Chicago strike. It was, uh, it was so moving, so moving. And the last strike, they just had a strike last month in October, fighting for nurses and counselors every day in the school building. And I'll tell you, Cindy, like I worked in a school where there was a nurse only on Thursday mornings. That's it. That's it. And so I had a student who got a ter- in a terrible accident. His uh, hand got slammed into a door jam by accident. And he was bleeding profusely. And had it not been a Thursday morning, I was so lucky it was a Thursday morning, that kid would have had to go into an ambulance without his mom because his mom wouldn't have gotten there in time. Um, And he would have had to go to the hospital without his mom. And luckily, the nurse was able to fix him up, but it was just that kind of thing. I ended up leaving my classroom afterwards, so grateful that there was a nurse, but I was just crying and sobbing in the principal's office for like half an hour because... I just couldn't handle it, you yeah. know. It that's the kind of stuff that Chicago Teachers Union was fighting for, just these basic things, you know. And then teachers all over the country like have to work second or third jobs just to make ends meet when they have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees in teaching, um, and no comparable profession that where you have to get a master's degree gets paid like as little as we do as yeah. teachers. You know, so it's not just about pay, it's making sure that our students' learning conditions or our teachers' working conditions, right? And so in order for me to teach, I also have to know as a teacher that I'm empowered and that the fellow teachers around me are empowered. Um, And I'm a member of um, the Moore Caucus uh, of my union, the UFT, 
uh, as the caucus of rank and file educators where we're fighting for our union to say things like Black Lives Matter, um, to fight for things like family leave. Our union settled for parental leave, but we wanted family leave for those people who don't identify as parents, but who are taking care of children, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, it's really important for us teachers um, to know that we have a voice on the ground that matters. And that honestly, so like, you know, I've, uh, I've door knocked for many, many candidates, uh, very many left-wing candidates, and teachers are, and nurses are the most trusted professions in the entire country. And if I tell someone, like, go vote for X person, like, they'll be like, I, un- I get you. <laughs> As a teacher, I can connect anything back to my students. Like, oh, like, Medicare for all would benefit all of my students and their families because they would actually go to the doctor and not worry about their health insurance. And then their kids wouldn't come into school sick, get other kids sick, and I'd be able to teach, right? That's an, one thing, for instance. Like, so like I can connect all kinds of topics back to education because I'm in communities and I get communities and, you know, and we teachers get communities. And we had like a mass teacher wave where our voices mattered and we teachers were politicized and active. We could change the world. Oh, definitely. And like with these teacher strikes, like it's a telling sign that like the Chicago Teachers Union shut down schools for 11 days for 300,000 students in order to make sure that, you know, our homeless youth had uh, supports, that class sizes uh, were lowered so that our students could actually learn in smaller classrooms. Like imagine teaching as a teacher with 32 students in your class. How can you like learn all those names? Like high school teachers, they have upwards of like 180 students they have to learn. Like how can you grade all those essays as no one way. teacher? Yeah. Yeah, no way. And and this all comes down to right like our like our political administration right now like slashing budgets right. and Betsy DeVos just like gunning all the <laughs> all these wonderful programming that you know students should be able to enjoy i mean it's just budget cuts budget cuts budget cuts and like you were saying like everything is so linked okay right. education healthcare, immigration um gun control In black class. lives matter everything is all actually connected i right. feel and and it starts with the classroom it starts with education it starts with like just being around peers, your peers, pe- being around different like students and you know teachers having a environment where they're able to freely teach the kids. Right, and you know, as a kid of immigrants, I grew up with such a scarcity mindset, thinking that yeah. there's only a limited amount of resources and I have to survive by myself. When you know, it's it's taken me many years to learn that and understand. I have people around me. Um, to support me and I'll just say one last thing that like you know there's these you know governments our government is running on an austerity budget when we're also like having massive tax cuts for the rich oh and if you look at Amazon wasn't taxed at all this year like zero percent that's it's crazy right and so like when you look at all these things like those austerity measures are on the backs of low-income people. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, if you just look at the MTA, for instance, they're trying to hire, what, they're spending $249 million on cops 
for fair evasion measures right now, which are going to predominantly affect like low income and poor people in New York yes, City. It's yeah. not like, oh, I'm a rich person. I'm just going to go jump a turnstile. Like that's <laughs> not what happens. <laughs> that's not what happens. Right. Exactly. It's, it's like, you know, like that that's just the kind of measures that we have prioritized as a society rather than being like, no, wraparound services for our most needy people like will actually decrease crime, increase like the like build the economy and build a sustainable economy yes. like with like the Green New Deal and uh, fight climate change, right? An economy that's based on like a fast fashion economy where we're just constantly buying new clothes and throwing them out as soon as possible is not sustainable and it's going to kill our planet. But why not like have more sustainable measures on the ground that's built by you know, people of color right. that understand communities and what drives communities and build the economy and our communities that way. I mean, I think this country is going through a class warfare right now. I think there's a serious, there's a war on the poor. There is, especially in New York with this fair evasion campaign. That 10% um, of New York City public school students are homeless. Yeah. 10%. Oh my God. How can I teach a student who does not know where they're going tonight to get a hot meal or to sleep? And, you know, the, the, the subway is New York's lifeline. It's how people get around here. And, and, and what, so what? Oh, if you a don't want to see Annie Tan drive. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, so what if a couple kids jump a turnstile? Like, what, what is the big deal? It really isn't a big deal. Like, the, the city and you has know what enough though? money. It's, it's not even that. It is the MTA budget, right? And yeah. the way that has been managed by, and, like, the duality between New York City and New York State. And yes. so now now because of mismanagement of those funds, now they're putting that cost on poor and low-income people, yes. right, who, like, are not the reason why no. the MTA's budget has ballooned this way. And, and bringing it back to the rest of our country, you know, the, the, tax, the tax cuts for the rich, that money has to come somewhere. And right. it's going to be coming from us. And we're going to be paying for it. The and top 99.5% up to 100%, like the top pay less taxes than all of us do Yeah, right now in 2019. Yeah. And, and, and th that's where, that's what happens in this country all the time is that this country. Trickle down does not work. No, it does not work. And this country is, has always been built on the backs of, poor people and people of color and it still is it, it's still reparations <laughs> reparations a hundred percent for the descendants yeah. of african uh enslaved peoples but it, it's just it this it the divide between the rich and the poor it keeps growing and growing and instead of cr of criminalizing the people who are actually ruining this country, the rich people, I mean, look at what they did. Look at Wall Street did to our economy in 2008, right? right? Like, instead of criminalizing them, we're criminalizing young kids who are just jumping a turnstile. Like, really? We're not going to criminalize the banker who literally stole millions and millions of dollars from, mm -hmm. you know, American taxpayers. We're not going to criminalize them. And that's that's the whole problem with this country is that right. we always give the benefit of the doubt to rich white people and yeah. even just white people. They don't really have to be rich. Right. Like they could be poor white and they still give them the benefit of the doubt. Like you've seen we've seen all these mass shooters who are white 
and they've killed a, a lot of people and they're always still given the benefit of the doubt like mm -hmm. oh he was just mentally disturbed and like no he was just racist and he just went on a murdering spree and you're giving sympathy to him but people of color we never get sympathy mm. right we never get sympathy um the moment someone of color does commit a crime or commits a terrorist act it's like we are generalized all people of color are bad and right. criminals and um so this is this is this is the country that we live in and mm -hmm. it's like how do we how do we live in this country how we do tell we tell our live? stories right we share them with one another we make outlets for each other to speak and we, we support one another we connect right we connect exactly. and we support exactly exactly that's what we got to do and we got to do it fast because we got climate change on oh. our tails yeah. and we need to be doing as much as we can to change this world as fast as possible because i'm like i i just read a report five pacific cities uh have drowned because of climate change hey, already yeah where our future is very very sketchy right now mm -hmm. and i feel that's why young people are rallying <laughs> and they should because they don't feel like they have and a it's future. gonna be on the backs of people of color all through all the world the first. yes of course right because those communities are going to be the ones that get hit the hardest when Hurricane hurricanes Maria. happen and when you know tsunamis happen and right. like that they're going to be hit the hardest right so um i'll let know i want to wrap things up by uh just you telling people where they can find information about you mm -hmm. and learn about your work and um you know connect with you if they wanted to uh my twitter handle is annie tangent formerly angry teach and the letter r um, you can find me online. You can look up any of the articles that Cindy so mentioned on the bio. Um, I've spoken in the past about the SHSAT and um, just teacher unions here and public education in general and testing. Ugh, what a mess. <laughs> um, and, yeah, you can reach me at AnnieTangent at gmail.com. This was uh, – I feel like we probably could have talked – much longer oh yeah i i i, I want to keep the conversation going I, i'm you know what next time you can come back another time <laughs> or something we can like keep Thanks, talking Cindy. um i feel like we could have we could have talked a lot longer yeah. right it's and hard because like i'm from new york and like, yeah it's 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 like all the intersections happen for me like like there are some times where I'm just like, oh, I could talk about Chinatown. Or, oh no, I could talk about public education. Yes. Oh no, I could talk about being a tenant. Oh no, I could talk about being Asian American and like the bigger, larger Asian American. There's too many things. There's a lot of things. There's too a lot many. of issues. Um, but I'm glad that you're in this fight. I'm glad that we're connected. And mm -hmm. you know, I know that the two of us, um, we've met through like these communities, right? These Asian, like, like progressive communities. And yep. as long as we stay connected to each other, um, I, you know, there's hope, right? Yes. There's hope. So not all is lost, everyone. Um, <laughs> thank you again, Annie, for being here. Absolutely. Really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for joining us at Activist NYC, the podcast. Your support is much appreciated. Activist NYC, the podcast, is presented in partnership with Listening Party, the creators of Family FM. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Be sure to follow Activist NYC on Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr at Activist NYC. Tune in next time. Bye.